Interactive Media Studies Colloquium and to the first talk in a new series on current research in Latin American studies, sponsored by Global Studies and Network. Um, I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank, in particular, uh, Ian Condry, whose support was instrumental in making the talk possible. And without further ado, um, it is a great pleasure to present tonight's speaker, George Judice, who is the director of the Miami Observatory on Communication and Creative Industries and professor at the Department of Modern Languages and Literatures and the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Miami. Um, it is hard to overstate the impact of Professor Hughes' research on cultural studies as a discipline, for his books have become obligatory references for scholars and students in the U.S. as much as in Latin America. Some of these publications include Cultural Policy, co-authored with Toby Miller, The Expediency of Culture, Nuevas Tecnologías, Música y Experiencia, or New Technologies, Music and Experience, Culturas Emergentes en el Mundo Hispano de Estados Unidos, or Emerging Cultures of the Hispanic World in the United States. His numerous articles cover a vast range of research concerns in critical theory, globalization, cultural policy, and new media studies. I should add, too, that his work as an editor and translator has been invaluable in broadening and deepening hemispheric exchange. He has been the recipient of myriad of awards and grants, including from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Fulbright and Rockefeller Foundation. Moreover, initiatives like the Privatization of Culture Project at NYU and the Miami Observatory at UM remain models for collaborative research in the humanities and rise to the challenge of straddling both a critical approach to mapping emerging cultural paradigms and a commitment to principled interventions in cultural policies. Um, after the talk, there will be a Q&A, so remember to introduce yourselves before you ask the question, and uh, join me, please, in welcoming George Hughes. Thank you very much, Paloma, uh, and Ian, and uh, Elizabeth, and all the faculty uh, here in Global Studies and Languages, the, the new name. I should say, as I said to a couple of faculty members before that, we had been thinking about doing the same name change uh, at the University of Miami, uh, in part because the humanities are hard put, and one tries to find an angle that could uh, get some receptivity <laughs> in the administration. And uh, because we do, like you, cover a lot of languages, right, with people dealing with all kinds of cultural studies, but also political studies, so on and so forth, in all those different areas, we feel that we have legitimacy <laughs> to do that. And we have colleagues in the other departments that give us backing. What I would like to do today, I, I'm actually going a little bit out on a limb because uh, I'm still thinking through some of the issues, particularly at the end, the conclusions. Um, I should say that uh, basically my argument's going to be about a post-cultural situation. And so, so in a sense, I'm departing, I'm, I'm making a departure from the expediency of culture, that book, or cultural policy. I mean, cultural policy is done, and it's going to be done, and people do engage in cultural work but it's going to be uh, 
about the place of that cultural work and its relationship to what we usually related to, at least since cultural studies came into existence, which are questions of politics and agency. Uh, so eventually, I'll get there. Uh, now, this presentation builds on work that I have been doing on the music industry. So the music industry, since the music industry, in a, in, in a sense, is, a, um, is in the forefront of transformations. So I've been tracking the music industry since the 1990s. Um, in, for example, the book that was mentioned, and I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to translate everything, but I'll translate it now. This book dealt with uh, technologies as prostheses of experience, the increasing portability and ubiquity of music, uh, but sound in generally, the idea of people walking around with their own personal soundtrack, right, for their other activities. Users construct their personality profile through the selection of musics and other contents generated by themselves and on social networks. Users uh, share these musics and other contexts that become an environment uh, of sociability, prosumers, or one could say producers, P-R-O-D-U-S-E-R, rather than producers with a C. That is a, a user. User becomes an important category for me uh, later on. But obviously, we're talking about users, users of social media, right? Uh, uh, who are generators of sample, samples, mashups, that was stuff that I dealt with in the book. The monetization of experiences, which was also dealt with in, uh, in the book. Uh, the problems of author's rights and copyright, the tension between satisfying psychocultural desires and comporting uh, oneself according to the norms of hegemonic culture industries. So those are some of the issues. What I didn't touch on was the evolution of new uh, in tools that um, seem to uh, make the tension compatible, satisfy desires, and generate uh, income uh, through the activities of the users. User-generated con uh, uh, content, like in Facebook, that's also a major generator of, of income, right? User-generated contents, right? All, all, all our communications generate, as we'll see, uh, income and publicity, as well as data that is crunched for a whole series of reasons, right? Um, so uh, much of my research is ethnographic on, on, on this. I attend music conferences and fairs where musicians who seek to take advantage of the new tools to make a living meet consultants who also make a living by selling them their expertise. I mean, that's what happens at a, at a music fair. Womex, Meetem, so on and so forth. One such consultant is Scott Cohen, uh, uh, co-founder of The Orchard, uh, a company that is involved in distribution, but really in counseling musicians on how they can make a living. Right? And it, it's a 360-degree it's a company that uh, covers all areas. One of the areas that I think I forgot to deal with sufficiently in this presentation is the whole question of branding. I think I mentioned it briefly, but branding is a very important aspect of music, and increasingly one gets to, uh, in, in the world of music, brands have become, to a good degree, substitutes for labels for promoting, 
promoting and financing music, whether it's a concert or, or sometimes, I mean, the exaggeration would be someone like Pitbull who is a walking advertisement and a singing advertisement, right? Um, so what does Scott Cohen counsel musicians? Well, you have to build a community of fans. So the notion of community is important as something that's going to be monetized. And one, the most, the most uh, uh, useful vehicle still is Facebook for getting those fans. And the ability to impact or influence the outcome uh, of, of, of their actions, these fans, to engage in social currency, what do you do for your audience so that they will do something for you? So you have to do something for you. I mean, I'm here, I'm not endorsing Scott Cohen, I'm reporting for the, for the analysis sake later of what he's recommending. And as he tells you, you could look him up on the web and s because musicians will see his counseling, you could look on YouTube for his counsel. My fi so he says, uh, ventriloquating users of Facebook. My Facebook page is not there for you to sell your shit. So it's not to advertise. Right? It has to be done differently on Facebook. Fans use your music, your photos to express themselves. So that's an important aspect of the use of contents. Why do they identify with me and what can I give them so that they help show who they are to their community? That's another assumption that he makes about the fans. And uh, what the musicians have to do is harvest emails by offering free music. Fans give up emails by clicking on different items on pages, ads, so on and so forth in exchange for your email. And the ultimately you monetize fans, not content. All right, so you don't sell music, you monetize fans. Target super fans with special mem mementos and experiences to tap into their affect. All right, so basically in this industry nowadays, affect is the most important uh, term, even though none of these people have read the Luzum Gattari or Masumi or anybody. But they know that affect is what you're going after because that what's, that's what can be monetized. Social media have exponentially increased an experience economy that was discerned, at least in writing, uh, as early as the 1960s. Uh, in his 1970 book, Future Shock, the futurist uh, Alvin Toffler argues that as middle classes got wealthier in post-industrial society, psychic gratification became an important driver of the economy. So here I'm just going to go into a little history of the transition from experience economy to an affect economy. Um, Toffler also notes something that Baudelaire had already proposed in 1863 that the ephemeral or the acceleration of change is a powerful force that seeps deeply into personal life. Today, of course, the internet is a place where the chief executive function has disseminated. Uh, the experience economy channels the force of the ephemeral by means of cheap, new, cheap um, uh, information and communication technologies and social media such that Maslow's uh, pyramid of needs, right, is, he has a, an evolutionary notion of the development of needs historically uh, begins to crumble. It was assumed that only in a wealthy society could the subjective dimensions of one's life develop beyond the satisfaction of material needs. At least that was Maslow's assumption. In social networking, various aspects of Maslow's different 
stages are satisfied from sex on the physiological fa phase to affection and friendship, the stage of love uh, and, um, and belonging, that is, of relationships and affiliations to self-esteem and self-actualization in the higher stages. It goes without saying that Maslow's is an ethnocentric uh, view of development. Right? Um, it can be argued that the new information and communication technologies and so social media facilitate or stimulate the instant psychic gratification that Toffler referred to, but as a means to capture a new source of value in the experience economy. The data generated by users, I mean, there's a whole other history of this that I won't get into, the, the whole view by sociologists that people who were, who were tapping into this experience economy were narcissists like Christopher Lash, Lash's 1978 book, The Culture of Narcissism. But I'm not going to engage in a long history of, of the different attitudes towards what we now would call an experience economy. Uh, the data generated by users serve to predict, now in the experience economy, serve to predict, detect, and promote lifestyles and consumption trends. One can think of recommender software built into Amazon streaming services like Spotify and Netflix and a host of other platforms. Uh, Pine and the, the uh, business consultants, Pine and Gilmore, summarized the history of the evolution of the economy, noting that the experience economy is distinguished not by a product or a service, but by experiences, as in tourism, the selling of affect to fans and branding, which is also a form of affect exchange. What is important, according to them, are memorable sensations that ensue not from a spectacle, but from an experience. There are several observations that one can make about this sketch of the experience uh, or sensation economy. The first is that it is obvious that the previous stages of the economy have not been rendered obsolete by this new phase. As we will see, uh, the data centers that I'll get to that form part of the Internet of Things, or at least where the Internet of Things are are hosted, um, that materially underpin the so-called cloud every historical, uh, involve every historical phase of the economy, from the extraction of resources like water to cool the servers, to the manufacture of the infrastructure and the machines, to the servicing of that infrastructure and those machines, not to speak of the marketing services and branding that are involved in this last phase of the economy. So if you look at the tip of the experience economy, or at least its infrastructure, the entire history of, of, of different um, modes of production are involved. So it's not like the experience economy has made, rendered obsolete the other stages in the economy. Another observation about this is that design plays an important role in the experience economy. I've added the design function to Pine and Gilmore's table. I mean, they actually mention it, but they didn't put it in the table. And I think it's it's a more adequate one than a stage because they themselves say that it's not about a spectacle, it's about experience, right? So it's a designer of experiences that we're talking about. Um, I've added this design function to the table because in the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything that I'll speak about in a moment, design has become a major function, in particular the design of navigations or explorations that produce sensations. It's precisely this function that interactive media design programs prepare students to achieve. Uh, and as you can see here about design, this was just from a, two weeks ago. Startups founded or co-founded by designers, uh, 
the consultant or the person that the journalist talked to, were being acquired at a rapid rate by companies known for having a tech-first approach. Google, Facebook, Adobe, Dropbox, and Yahoo, for example, have all bought design-oriented startups since 2010. Um, and this uh, informant said that 27 startups co-founded by designers as well as 10 creative agencies were purchased by tech companies in the last four years. Indeed, design is one of the drivers of the Internet of Things of ev or the Internet of Everything, which have, of course is what inhabits the so-called cloud. Uh, uh, in any case, I mean, obviously the person that's, that one thinks of when one thinks of design is Steve Jobs, right? And uh, that's it, it's sort of the model for the person who could make a tech company actually be more valuable by adding design to it. Uh, but it's a design that has to do with one's experience with the product. Uh, Music, the medium with which I began this talk, is a major factor in cloud usage, with 90% of Apple, Amazon, and Google cloud users storing music. That is, every time, I mean, when, if you use iTunes or if you work with Spot, any streaming service, it's all stored on the so-called cloud. Most of us in this room uh, live with, if not with our heads, then with our eyes and fingers in the clouds, that is, in those little prostheses, that we have in our pockets, right? But of course, as we all know, the cloud is not really a cloud. Uh, moreover, we know or should know that the cloud housed in millions of data centers wor worldwide estimated to, that it will reach 8.6 million data centers in two years require enormous amounts of energy and water, which according to an NPR report two weeks ago will be scarce water uh, in, in a few years, 40% shortage worldwide. Consider, for example, that, and I'm quoting, a large data center has a capacity to use as much electricity as a small town in the United States, and multiply that amount of electricity by millions of data centers, and also the, the, the amount of water. Of course, nowadays, some of the quote-unquote more progressively thinking companies are putting their their data centers uh, north of Alaska towards the North Pole so that they can uh, not use as much energy to cool either energy or water uh, in, this, uh, in, in the new data centers. Uh, there are several consequences to the use of internet for music and relatedly video. Um, we see that music together with video and photography which are to a good degree, to a very large degree, user-generated content, constitute two-thirds of the contents on the internet, uh, a percentage that grows even more, uh, or that produces an even greater uh, storage on, on the so-called cloud. Right? The more that we put, the more that you have stuff on Instagram, right, or Picasso, or whatever, the more the, the necessity for more servers on the cloud. Uh, moreover, if we uh, look at the, uh, the share of music in videos reproduced on YouTube, which is 40%, 40% of YouTube uh, videos are music videos, or at least include music. We could assume that the quota of music, the share of music on the internet, is greater than 
36% of consumption on the internet, since the share of video on the internet is 90%. The share of the usage of, of, uh, of bandwidth, so on and so forth, is 90% uh, on the, uh, by video, of all traffic on the internet. Another consequence of this increase in music and video streaming is that it fosters even more uh, mining and private analysis of data. I mean, that is where the more that we use it, the more data there is for crunching. Uh, as is explained by uh, these analysts, Van Verdelden and Crook, the, um, the bundling uh, on, on web pages of email, uh, telephone, uh, telephone chatting, uh, I'm, I'm here, I'm sorry, I have a few things here in Spanish that I'm at pains to translate. Uh, the, the transfer of audiovisual archives and musical archives via FTP, financial services, etc., were offered separately on the internet until the end of the 90s. Now they're bundled, and all, this bundled, uh, all these bundled services, of course, are on the so-called cloud. With the new millennium, there uh, emerge new businesses that combine all of these elements uh, on their own platforms, on private platforms. So we're dealing with platforms that are no longer on the internet, uh, on, on the public internet, if we want to use those terms. Obviously, public and private begin to become very strange terms when you take into consideration that something Facebook and Google basically provide even more successfully a utility like electricity and water than state companies do, right? So we're eventually going to get into the problematics of the relationship of this new uh, sphere to questions of state and public. Um, as Forbes reported very recently, I guess also two weeks ago, the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything will be worth $14.4 trillion by 2002. If that were today, it would be the largest industrial sector. And if it were a country, it would have the second highest GDP after the US economy. If you could see there, the US economy has just over $17.5 trillion. And if it were five years from now, or seven years from now, the internet of everything would be worth 14.4. So we're talking about an enormous sector, right? Uh, larger than the Chinese economy, so on and so forth. Um, of course, for every new job created in this new economy, such as interactive media design jobs that I mentioned before, tens if not hundreds of thousands industrial and even service jobs disappear, just as the industrialization of agriculture reduced the number of jobs, leaving most ba the, mo the most basic harvesting jobs for undocumented workers, for example. Another observation is that the Internet of Things, or the Internet of Everything, uh, because the Internet of Things <laughs> begins to become the Internet of Everything when you consider, for example, smart cities, where so many different functions, uh, including things like Uber. I mean, I don't know how many, if you use Uber here to get a taxi. Well, all of that data is handled on, on these platforms. So we're talking about increasingly the management of things and people, so on and so forth, are on the so-called cloud. 
So uh, the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything requires creative work with very high value added, such as design. This together with what Patricia Clough, a sociologist and her fellow researchers point out, that information theory developed in physics and the life sciences takes information to be a capacity of matter to self-form and to engage in self-measurement. Information is itself, along with matter and energy, presumed to be physical. Uh, so this point about the high value added of jobs, together with this aspect uh, of information um, to be a capacity to, of, of matter to self-form, requires problematizing the assumptions, now that we're talking about jobs, of the labor theory of value, beyond even those who have theorized effective labor, people like Negri, Virno, and others, which moves beyond the individual labor in favor of a general potentiality of humanness, but do not question the embodiment of this potentiality, its form of mattering. That is, uh, the argument that that I'm, I'm here I'm making the, the, the bridge between affect and sensations in things like Facebook, uh, the music industry, so on and so forth, this new industry of, of, of tapping affect, and the and affect theory. Right? I'm, I, I, I've been building to make this connection, uh, and that's where I'm going. And the issue there, that information is not just something that's uh, cognitive labor, but it actually is in itself matter. In questioning uh, the body as organism, Clough and her colleagues build on Brian Masumi's work in his Deleuze and Guattarian-inspired book, Parables for the Virtual Movement Affect Sensation, suggesting that if the distinction between organic and non-organic matter is dissolving in relationship to information, then labor power must be treated in terms of an abstraction that would be befitting not only organic and non-organic bodies, but bodies that are beyond the distinction altogether. That is, bodies that are conceived as arising out of a dynamic matter, or matter is informational. This leads them Clough and her colleagues, to posit that, I quote, science and capital are engaged in efforts to directly modulate the pre-individual or the potentiality of the indeterminate emergent creativity of affect itself, thus requiring critical thinkers to attend to the tension between control, following the oft-quoted Deleuzean essay, Society of Control, between control and indeterminate emergence. They conclude, Clough and her colleagues, that this tension constitutes the problematic at the heart of a radical neoliberal governance of productivity. Let me make more explicit the connection between the internet and social media-based economy that I've been referring to, an affect theory, now is theorized by Masumi. There is a passage in Parables for the Virtual in which he contemplates the possibility that someday, this is 2002, probably written in 2000, 2001, when the Internet of Things was just beginning to be called that. Uh, so there's a passage in which he contemplates the possibility that someday ubiquitous computing will produce immersive and interactive environments. Right. Well, if we know anything about 
the kinds of uh, experiences that want to be produced by people who, like in the music industry, they want to produce immersive and interactive environments. This is something that he was hypothesizing. Someday this may happen. Implanted in uh, inconspicuous interfaces, implanted in everyday environments in such a way as to seamlessly and continuously relay digitally coded impulses into and out of the body through multiple superposable sense connections, eventually developing into an encompassing network of infinite reversible analog digital circuitry on a planetary scale. While he may not have known the name for this in 2002, he is referring to the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything, which is what the so-called cloud makes possible. Masumi cautions that we should not confuse the digital with the virtual, although he holds out the possibility that, I quote, if there is one day a directly virtual digitality, it will have become that by integrating the analog into itself, meaning, for example, bio, biomuscular robots and the like, by translating itself into the analog, such as neural networks and other evolutionary systems, or again, by multiplying and intensifying its relays into and out of the analog, as in ubiquitous computing. Masumi ends this chapter on the, the superiorities, uh, the chapter is called the superiority of the analog. He ends the chapter of the on, 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 on the superiority of the analog by arguing that, I quote, the analog and the digital must be thought together asymmetrically because the analog is always a fold ahead. We might say that the connection to the analog is what enables the digital to become virtual, imminent, or to attain potentiality. The virtual is a, I quote uh, him, the virtual is a lived paradox where uh, where what are normally opposites coexist, coalesce, and connect, where what cannot be experienced cannot but be felt, albeit reduced and contained. The analog is the realm of the body, its movements and sensations, and it is in the relation to the body that affects, in relation to which affections take place, where they're felt. This is what Masumi argues has been overlooked by most cultural studies approaches anchored in theories of ideology and representation including culture itself and its identity-based understandings of the political, such that the move from the body to the social, to social change, that move uh, avoids, quite often, uh, very bodily matters of movement and sensation. Masumi understands these movements and sensations as autonomic processes, like sweating, so on and so forth. Uh, that, uh, thus locating them in a different domain from that of emotion, which he sees more as narrated perceptions. The difference between affects connected to sensations on the one hand and emotions that have a narrative base to them. To conscious, and, and emotions also connected to uh, conscious perception and language. Uh, there are resonance, obviously, to Deleuze and Spinoza, as well as to Bergson and Simondon in Masumi's conceptualization of affect. But I'm not going to follow uh, any further deeply into theoretical issues here uh, in conceptualizing affect. Instead, I would like to follow up on some apparent similarities 
between affect theory and that of the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything, as well as some discrepancies. In the first place, some discussions of affect situate it at all levels of matter such that the distinction between organic and non-organic matter is dissolved. Drawing on Bergson, Masumi posits that things and objects are literally, materially, prosthetic organs of the body, such that it is possible to argue that the body is literally, materially, an organ of its things. He then goes on to suggest that it is not clear who is used by whom, for having an instrumentally reasoning uh, body for an organ could be most useful to a thing especially now that we have the Internet of Things, we are useful to things. Analogously, the Internet of Things, or the Internet of Everything, refers to the array of devices, appliances, vehicles, wearable material, and sensor-laden parts of the environment that connect to each other and feed data back and forth. As one sees in the diagram, people connect and communicate with people, people with things, machines with people and or things, and things with things. Uh, there's many different possibilities. And this is what happens in smart cities, for example. Whether your burglar alarm is connected to the police department or the availability of parking spaces or show up on your GPS or what have you. And as in assemblage and affect theory, Things have the capacity to sense and as, su as such resemble the indistinguishability of organic and non-organic matter that Masumi and others refer to. In this regard, according to theorists of the Internet of Things, uh, objects will have uh, unique network addresses making, well, you can see all the different categories in which all these objects are connected in the Internet of Things. Objects will have unique network addresses making each discrete object uniquely identifiable. They will have some sort of layered sensing capacity allowing them to dynamically register changes to their environment. They will be able to store and process that information as well as independently infinite, uh, initiate action. They will be, be remotely localizable within their environment and they may be provided with a human interface. A recent research report on the Internet of Everything makes the point that people will be useful to things insofar as their data and communication will be embedded in the circulation of things. Moreover, humans will not necessarily be at the helm of the analysis of data. And now analytics is no longer a top-down process. In fact, with the Internet of Everything, analysts may not even be the decision-makers at all, at all times. Machines may start to make many of the adjustments and decisions based on the data they're generating, requiring uh, uh, computation at the edge. There is no doubt that there is great potentiality in the new technologies of communication and sharing and the effective design embedded in them, but the issue of control is also evident as individuals relay information about themselves across media networks both intentionally through weblogs, status updates, posting personal media content, etc., and inadvertently through browser cookies which are assigned to track users' online habits and various forms of data mining. Indeed, web analytics has evolved beyond this, the familiar web uh, page views, session duration, and bounce rates, to new monitoring technologies to track the autonomic bodily sensations that for Masumi signal the emergent 
such as the dilation of pupils, intestinal peristalsis, gland secretion, and galvanic skin responses, which are subject to measurement. So one of the interesting things is that autonomic responses can be measured. Take, for example, uh, the measurement of user engagement, which is a, in, in psychology is a very prevalent form of measurement. Uh, and it's also a major practice for advertising and the analysis of attention in the culture industries, right? music, film, what have you. It presumes to get at the secrets of the brain, actually of the autonomic responses, than actually really the brain. I mean, presumably, the measurement of autonomic responses says something about what your brain is doing. As referred to in this manual for neuromarketing, Indeed, it seems like a reprise of social Darwinist behaviorism, reminiscent of cerebral audiovisual re-education, the scene in A Clockwork Orange, if you remember, uh, where uh, McDowell is, is uh, subjected to that in order to get rid of his sexual predator and violent tendencies. But no longer as a form of torture, right? <laughs> now. Now it's as a form of pleasure. <laughs> uh, Roddy McDowell was tortured. Was it Rod Malcolm McDowell? Malcolm McDowell was tortured, but we're not presumably tortured as we're engaging in some of these activities. Um, new firms like CoStarch have emerged to conduct so-called sentiment analysis, which analyzes big data harvested from subjective information in source materials to advise music and audiovisual producers in the tweaking of scripts, soundtracks, casting, etc. Note that the global entertainment industry, an important driver of the internet, was valued at $2 trillion in 2011. Right? So it's, it's, an, it's an enormous sector, making it one of the largest sectors in the world, in the world economy especially in, in its newer experience and affect stage. Another company with many clients in Hollywood, Worldwide Motion Picture Group, analyzes scripts before the writers complete them in order to eliminate risks in the market. And they actually get hired <laughs> to do this. The same goes on in the music industry with designers of music experience. In this affective economy, Apple, combines the hard technology and the soft management experience. As referred to in this article, Apple acquired Beats Electronics, a manufacturer of high-end earphones. You probably, most of you know about that. The company paid $3.2 billion for Beats, not so much for its profitability in selling earphones, right? Although it made substantial profits but rather to strengthen its new streaming service, music service, iTunes Radio, in a context of decreasing sales for paid downloads. Right? Paid downloads don't have the same experience effect that you get with streaming services. So that's one of the reasons. Among others is that it's much easier. There's a rule of the internet, it's I, I want it now. Right? I don't want to wait two seconds longer than I need to to get it. And actually downloading something may take longer than just going to Spotify and putting the name of it and hearing it. So there's several reasons why streaming 
is on the rise and downloading is on 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 the uh, wane, is waning. Um, Apple's gambit was based on the acquisition of the sensibility of entrepreneurs. That's what they were buying. They were buying the hipness, the coolness, and the taste of Dr. Dre and Jimmy Yovine, right? As well as the contracted services of curators like the Academy of Country Music, Friends of Beats, Pitchfork, the Rap Raider blog, Rolling Stone, and individuals like Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, who is also a creative director of Beats. What you hear in curated playlists can be shared on Twitter or Facebook and also added to your library. This transformation of hipness, Dre and uh, Yovine, or personality capital, we could call it, based on sensibility, into economic capital, is the subject of a study at the Harvard Business School, which Yovine and Dr. Dre, them, to which Dr. Dre and Yovine donated $70 million, right? To found the Yovine, uh, Jimmy Yovine and Andre Young, that's Dr. Dre's real name, uh, Academy of the Arts, Technology and Business Innovation. Actually, this was donated to 70 million for uh, University of Southern California to found that center. The aim of this center is to prepare a new generation of innovators like Steve Jobs, people who bring in design and experience in the use of technology. And you could see this in many, uh, I mean, this is one of the most famous bloggers that bases her entire uh, success on curation on the basis of her personality. I mean, that's basically why one follows a blogger. I mean, some of us follow bloggers because we're scholars and we want information, right, do research. But a lot of people follow for taste reasons. Um, the new figure in the music and media business uh, is the curator, which creative industry observers like Mulligan consider the major figure of the fourth stage in the history of digital music, which attracts publics or users and contributes to the um, ongoing of evolution in the formation of taste, that is, discovery. That's our discovery takes place through these processes. Sometimes the musician, him or herself, is the curator, attracting a community not only of listeners but of collaborators as, uh, or co-composers as in the case of Jorge Drexler's Aplicaciones, a portmanteau word that combines the concept of apps and songs. Because in Spanish, aplicación is an app and a canción is a song. So aplicaciones are how you can download the app and compose with him and then upload your songs to YouTube uh, or to Spotify or whatever as a co-composed song. And of course, it increases his reach Right? as well as provides an experience to the user of actually composing something together with a famous musician. Uh, indeed, collaborators co-compose and upload their compositions. Drexler creates a community to follow uh, the term of, uh, of uh, the, the orchard, right? uh, based on connectivity and affect. To some, some people actually think that this is a democratization of demand, adjusting the offerings to viewers' preferences 
But we can also think of it as the opposite. This kind of uh, tailoring subtracts the element of, often this element of surprise in creation. I mean, especially when you think about the people who are recommending how to tweak a script on the basis of what I already prefer, so then I see what I already prefer. That's, um, but more problematic than seeking blockbusters through data mining, uh, uh, through data mining is the biopolitics involved in this kind of work. Uh, now, the biopolitical principle of control is extended to the processes of interpretation of content and interactions with others in social networks. Moreover, it is important to keep in mind that the expo explosion in the culture and creative industries, together with the Internet of Things and everything, is a major driver in the expansion of the cloud. This expansion of the cloud, some critics argue, is creating a new form of sovereignty that vies with that of states. So we'll go into this other aspect of this huge increase in the power of platforms is, as we will see, putting into question something that has been put into question in political science, which is the viability of states. Uh, so let's look at, uh, actually, Menahaven is, a, is, is really two artists that work together who, in this piece, uh, Captives of the Cloud, uh, examine all the different ramifications of what cloud involves. So they particularly look at Facebook. And as you can see, we'll get to the stack in a second, what the stack is. Uh, we see that the contemporary cloud platforms are displacing, if not also replacing, traditional core functions of states, like an internet of everything. When uh, the parking spaces that are available are determined by these analyses done on the so-called cloud, right? Uh, beds in a hospital for surgery, what have you, your alarm, your burglar alarm, so on and so forth. I mean, we begin to see, you know, a, two, uh, a new millennium version of, of Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, if you remember the stories that after a Holocaust, these robot, robotic mice are still running around the house cleaning it. Um, so, and following up on that question of analysis of platforms and states, we see, Archaic states drew their authority from the regular provision of food. So a state is supposed to provide the needs of citizens, right? Over the course of modernization, more was added to the intricate bargains of Leviathan. Energy, infrastructure, legal identity, and standing, objective and comprehensive maps, credible currencies, and flag brand loyalties. Bit by bit, each of these and more are now provided by cloud platforms not necessarily as formal replacements for the state versions, but like Google ID, simply more useful and effective for daily life, right? And in terms of finances, you could think of the, n the numbers of people that are now moving on to Bitcoin, which is also conducted through the cloud, you know, the new uh, electronic digital currencies. Uh, and uh, the, the major theorists of this issue of, uh, of the cloud, the state, and what he calls the stack, which you see here, right? The, the relationship from user to earth through these interfaces um, says, the optimistic scenario 
is the emergence of new modes of sovereignty. So aside from the state, the question is, where is sovereignty in the world of the Internet of Things? In a world in which uh, affects have been tapped to function in this new uh, environment. So where is uh, uh, the optimistic scenario? So obviously, on these kinds of issues, you could have the optimists and the pessimists. The pessimists are apocalyptic thinkers, and the optimists are a lot of the people in this business, right? <laughs> who think that it's providing new forms of citizenship. Although that term itself has to be put under erasure because it's not really citizenship. You're not getting rights. You're being sold something, or you're you're being something's being extracted in exchange for usership. So you have to think of usership instead of citizenship. And what are the terms like the terms that you never read when you when you sign on to a new service, a new platform, right? I always ask people how many people actually read the Facebook terms of service before they agreed to go on Facebook, and I've almost never seen anyone raise his or her hand. So you're a user, right, without having even understood what the terms of the usership are in many cases. So the optimistic scenario is the emergence of new modes of sovereignty that would let people assemble and connect in ways that better serve their real needs and wants. Perhaps these are not recognizable as states, platforms, corporations, or commons. These are all forms for where there could be governance and sovereignty, right? States, platforms, corporations, and platforms. But some bizarre hybrid of all four plus three new things that we don't know yet. Equally likely is what we can call cloud feudalism. In this scenario, this is the pessimistic view, the walls of some gardens are hard and thick. The mechanization and routinization of everyday life is amplified beyond measure, and all politics, including biopolitics, reduce user citizens uh, to mere personnel. Now, this is not just a theoretical issue that, you know, someone, uh, Benjamin Bratton is, is someone who could have written Matrix, right, for the 21st century. That's the way he theorizes. It's sort of like, Virilio on speed. <laughs> but we do see this working out. The disputes between Google in China and Google in Brazil. So uh, as you know that China has been keeping out, well, we have a Chinese specialist that probably deals with new media. Uh, but in any case, you know that China has a Facebook, it has a, it has a Twitter, it has, it, it has its own brands that do the same kinds of things, but that can be more closely monitored than what Facebook would allow, I mean, than what Google would allow, including the NSA information that was leaked. And that is the major issue that was there with Brazil. I mean, it's there with a lot of countries, right? But with Brazil, it's particularly glaring. Brazil is a country of 200 million, 209 million people, the sixth or seventh economy in the world, right? It's, 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 it alternates with the UK as the sixth. And yet, when President Dilma Rousseff learned that there was all kinds of information about her and about her government 
in the leaks, the, the NSA uh, the, that, that Snowden leaked, she tried to get Google to hand over control of the data centers to the government. And Google, as it says, it took its day, it, it located the control of the data centers in the United States. So a major issue here is where is sovereignty for, because so long as the data centers are outside Brazil, there's not much that Brazil can do about it unless they have their, their uh, technicians find some way to prevent people from harvesting information from Brazilian users, right? Um, so that's a major issue about sovereignty. We're talking about one of the largest countries, one of the richest countries, and it has that difficulty. Of course, China has had more success with, with Google in terms of keeping it out or keeping it at bay. Not keeping it totally out because its browsers are used. Um, oh, these are the pages that are on both sides. So what Brazil had to put up with because of this was slower connectivity. I mean, it's only a few seconds, but when the information gets routed through the United States, it's, it, it's slower uh, to get to exchange information in Brazil. So even in the cases of China and Brazil, we see a steady erosion of the state's ability to name and manage the sites of the constitution of the political. Uh, for example, the demonstrations in Brazil in June 2013. In, 19, in her 1996 book, uh, Losing Control, Sovereignty in the Age of Globalization, Saskia Sassen observed a delinking of territoriality and sovereignty. Although it is possible to see that there are zones of cities that manage to maintain a measure of sovereignty, if not control, than at least some kind of citizen co-government. So th that's another issue that um, I think is important, that there is probably greater possibility of some form of, of uh, citizen slash user control, or at least agency, if we want to call it that, uh, at the very local level, as we'll see. This is a very complex issue uh, cross-cut by many factors, as we see in the intralife map, created collaboratively by a network to imagine what is happening now and in a future in which power flows centrifugally. Uh, so as you can see, is that they're trying to, they're looking at a multi-layered situation because what's at stake here is how does one understand something like agency? I mean, that, that's, a, that's, that's a notion that in our cultural studies world of 30 years ago, we could find agency in people with particular kinds of identity wielding agency, right? And particular cultural practices. But when you look at this multi-layered, uh, not even uh, field, well, we could call it a very multi-dimensional field force, the possibility of going from point A to point B, which would be agency, is actually you may arrive at point C or D or stay at point A, depending on how you traverse this very complex field force. Um, with the new, I mean, this is the case before 
you get the Internet of Things. With the Internet of Things, it becomes even more pervasive. Uh, and so let's look at some examples uh, of, of ratcheting up some of the platforms that we work with. As you know, Facebook bought WhatsApp, right? which, at least in the, in the developing world, was increasingly used. In fact, even in the United States, it was beginning to be used more than Facebook. So Facebook bought it, and for, I think, $1.9 billion. When WhatsApp had only had a gross, uh, an income in 2013 of $20 million. So he says, how do you go from $20 million profit to $1.9 billion? It was the potential of taking Facebook that at that point had close to a billion users to its goal of 7.3 billion users, which is the population of the Earth. All right? Uh, and so in order then not only to have uh, a, an application that's used, a platform that's used by many people that's added over half a billion people to Facebook, they also have created a program of drones, right, which are going to be circling the Earth at, I think, 19 kilometers high, which, as we'll see in a second, explained by someone who I think was here at MIT and then went to work for Facebook. So I'll, I'll play that little piece of video in a second. Uh, but what's interesting about this is that, again, it's the question of, is it public or private? If, if you can connect 7 billion people, is, is, that a, is that something that a state should be doing, <laughs> right? that the United Nation, Nations should be doing, or is it something that a, an individual private company does? So what, what happens to the notion of public and private when a corporation like this can do that? Um, so let's, uh, I don't know that I, there's a way in which you went down there and got the video. Oh, I think I just did it. No, I didn't do it. So this is Yael McGuire, who's the engineer behind this. Uh, and we'll just see a little bit of it. So we, all we need to do is, yeah, there we go. So in suburban environments, you need a, a different solution. So we're looking at a new type of plane architecture that flies at roughly 20,000 meters, 20 kilometers, because that's the point where the winds are the lowest, it's above commercial airlines, it's even above the weather, and actually can stay in the air for months at a time. And these uh, planes are solar powered, and they sit there, and they just circle around, and they have the ability to just broadcast and it down, but significantly closer than a satellite does. So one thing that we're working on, which I think ties all of these solutions together, is lasers as a mechanism for communicating between devices. So whether it's a satellite network that's moving across the sky, imagine lasers connecting those satellites together. We actually, on our team, have some of the pioneers in this field of what's called free space optics. We're being able to distribute really amazingly high capacity data streams, similar to what you find over fiber optic networks, through the air and between platforms. And we're just at the beginning. We have some amazing people on the team, and there's some awesome problems to solve. And to me, this presents 
an opportunity to be able to do something that you love, that you're passionate about, and that you really deeply know can have dramatic impact on people's lives. And we're looking for some fantastic people in physics, communication systems, to really help us solve this problem today. No, oh, we were at the end anyway. And as you've probably read in the news, Zuckerberg has been going around the world to many different countries, meeting uh, with presidents and congresses, setting up the arrangements so that this connectivity of the other 3.8 billion people, there's 3.2 billion people with access to the internet right now. So we're talking about another to get to 7.2 or 7.3, somewhere around 3.8 billion more. Right. And of course, the difficulty will be with the billion people who live on less than a dollar. But the other 2.8 billion people who live on $2 or more a day, that's $60 a month, over a year can afford, well, before I get to what they can afford, Google's doing the same thing. Right? Google has its own, uh, they actually bought the drone making company. And they also bought a company that has set of, they bought uh, Nest Labs that has thermostats. But thermostats connected to the Internet of Things with its own system of satellites so that they can tap more directly between uh, the, the Internet signals that are going to be sent and the Internet of Things. Uh, as you could see, I was saying before, is like when it comes to the data centers of Google and YouTube, you could see how they're concentrated. So that when one of these companies decides to route the information through the United States, right, it becomes a problem in places like Latin America and Africa. Although increasingly, there will be obviously more data centers set up by the problem is, is that governments are doing this less than private companies, right? Uh, and here we have, uh, as you could see, from 2009, look at the increase of the takeover of, of Google Browser in the world, Google Chrome. Everything except Africa, which has Opera, all right? which is probably a browser that you don't even use. I mean, most of you, does anyone use Opera? No. It's, it comes on the phones, but, okay. Um, uh, again, is, I, I don't know where I keep on missing, put a slide in the wrong place. This is what I wanted to get to. Together with Google and Facebook connecting close, well, at least seven, six billion people, right? There's already, those of you who know about this may already know that there's a $33 equivalent of an Android or iPhone, which is a Mozilla phone that uh, costs $33. It was supposed to cost $25, but didn't come out at that price. It's $33. But that's the phone that if a family that makes $2 a day, $60 a month, can save throughout a year, would be able to have a phone that could do everything. And as we know, people who live in the middle of the Amazon have televisions with satellite dishes. 
they will get the phone as well. Right, so there'll be that connectivity. So um, in closing, uh, so as not to end on, on the more ap apocalyptic side of, of this, I'd like to refer to Bernard Stiegler's proposal toward the end of his book, States of Shock. The book is a trenchant indictment of the control wielded by the global industry under a radical neoliberal regime, which has, according to him, rendered writing itself Hypnomnemnata, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I don't know how to pronounce ancient Greek, but uh, the, uh, the actual registering, writing, he writes, as the role of digital tertiary retention and innovation becomes increasingly important, the speed with which knowledge circulates accelerates, transforming knowledge into information, which in turn becomes calculable data, and hence allows this selection to be automated. The amnesic Anamnesic process is thereby short-circuited, and this leads seemingly inevitably to the destruction of the après-coup and the elimination of delay, without which there can be no time for reflection. In a sense, you get a version of here something that a lot of the, the more apocalyptic people said that the new media, just as they used to say about video games, are based on acceleration and, and speed, and hence don't allow for reflection. Right. There's been a lot of responses to that. But I'm interested in another aspect, another point that he makes, rather than that one. He also acknowledges that the very functions of operating hypnomnemnata, forms of registering, of which one is writing, in today's digital world, are also now in the hands of the public themselves. People chat, send Facebook messages, put stuff on Facebook posts. Following the model of Wikipedia, he argues for an openness of the university. So in his particular argument towards the end of the book, he's making an argument for the place of the university in this world. Uh, as a site of the university as a site of research and innovation to the surrounding communities. University is either instrumentalized or takes dream in a refuge with no future. So it has to be instrumentalized for a social purpose. To escape this uh, uh, this alternative is, it, well, actually, it's either instrumentalized for profit or it takes refuge. But he says to escape that false alternative, it's essential that the university invent a new relation to its outside and through that to the question of its milieu and not just of the environment, whether physical, economic, political, or mental, via the theory and practice of hypnomnemata, forms of writing, which don't necessarily mean with a pen and paper. They would be different forms. And in relation to the community of amateurs, that is, through the development of contributory research. So he's seeing a relationship there between the university, forms of registering, whether writing or coding, what have you, and its relationship to people outside. Communities of amateurs forming what might be called, in some cases, digital academies are already involved in various fields of research. For example, in epidemiology, entomology, astrophysics, computing, in relation to the open source model of industrial production, in economics, and so on. Such communities obviously exist in the artistic field and the political field, and more generally in the nonprofit and activist worlds. That's Stiegler. Stiegler refers to amateurs, but I prefer the term maker, as in maker culture. Because a maker is not necessarily, I mean, 
as you will see in my example, and this is my, my, my affirmative optimistic example, uh, the people involved, because of the way they collaborate, end up not being necessarily professional nor amateur. We'll see that. So he refers to amateurs, but I prefer the term maker or maker culture, which is historically connected to amateurs who dedicate themselves to hobby forms of invention, many of which became important innovations, such as Steve Wozniak's Apple computer. Remember, it's a major piece of technology made in a garage. Assembled in his garage. Currently, maker culture converges with hacker culture, which makes it possible to adapt or hack what comes ready-made or prefabricated with new technologies. The ethical principle of free software oriented towards collaborative practice. Thus, with the emergence of hacker spaces, there's a transition from a culture of do-it-yourself to a culture of do-it-together. The hacker spaces or workplaces or workshops operated in a community setting where individuals with common interests can meet to socialize and collaborate on projects that have to do with technology, science, the digital arts, and other forms. Increasingly, these hacker spaces are geared to urban problems facing environmental pollution, traffic, congestion, safety, organic farming, and other social technologies. And the example that I have is the Media Lab Prado. Um, it's a program which is part of the Department of Arts, Sports, and Tourism of the Madrid City Council. Again, I was focusing, I was making the argument before that instead of looking at the state level, or at least the nation state level, that there is greater traction at the municipal level. And this is certainly an example in the case of Madrid. It is conceived as a citizen laboratory for the production, research, and dissemination of cultural projects that explore collaborative forms of experimentation and learning that have emerged from digital networks. Its goals are to enable an open platform that invites and allows users to configure, alter, and modify research and production processes to sustain an active community of users with the development of these collaborative projects to offer multiple forms of participation that allow people with different profiles, artistic, scientific, technical, levels of specialization, experts and beginners, and degrees of implication to collaborate. So the way their modus operandi is that uh, they get funding from the city municipal council and they make an open call for collaborative projects. People who would design a project that would involve transdisciplinary, uh, t a transdisciplinary team, an engineer, an artist, a homemaker, a cook. It, it, it's, it, any arrangement is possible. People will design such projects and send them. And those projects that get selected by being the most, having the greatest potential, then are the basis for a new call for applications for the engineer, the artist, the cook, so on and so forth, who will then come together and realize the projects. Right? So the ones that I've seen range from projects that have to do with um, uh, tracking environmental pollution in the city of Madrid by creating uh, drones with particular kinds of uh, information sensing that send the information to local radio and websites 
for the use of everybody, things like that that track traffic, or projects that have to do with uh, uh, urban agriculture, including some urban agriculture that is used then to uh, contribute food and involve people in places that are like usually immigrants, North African immigrants or other immigrants that, uh, that, that are poor. So there's a range of uses that one finds. Uh, and um, there are working groups. If you look at the working groups, uh, aside from the more artistic ones, like artistic telepresence, because there's a lot of innovation in this. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be for tracking pollution. It could be an artistic project. It could be a project that uh, has to do with uh, citizen journalism, right? The uh, journalism of data, using data or revealing information about data usage, art and politics, um, the how to create a network of bodies. They're, they're probably influenced by Deleuze and Guattari in, in doing that particular project. Um, another one, the multiplicities in movement, probably influenced by Negri and Hart, right? Uh, affects, corporization, or embodiment, and the, reverse, the reverting of cybernetics. Um, 3,000 years of post-human history. And BodyNet how to make a, a network of bodies. There's all different kinds of projects that one finds. The one that I find most interesting is the one about the city and the commons. Right? It's an ongoing project with, again, a very heterogeneous team that are working together on trying to bring about a form of governance, right? not government, but governance that includes citizens, users, migrants, so on and so forth in imagining how one could have a very different kind of governing process. Um, okay, so uh, these, these, are, these are the information, uh, the most recent information that's available in the statistics about users of the internet. You could see that there's over 3 billion, and there's, at least at that point, there were 7.2 billion, so we're talking about 4.8 billion people that would have to be incorporated. Um, the phone that would enable to do this if Facebook and Google are able to actually, not cable, but to laser the world, right? Uh, and so I come to the end here, and here I, I need help because I haven't been, a, I use Foucault's three eras and epistemes, but then Started, I had proposed to myself in the experience of culture a fourth, which has to do with performativity, the postmodern age performativity, remixing branding, what, what Henry Jenkins calls spreadability, and the Ranciarian notion of the relationship of politics and aesthetics, which is the distribution of the sensible. But as I begin to think of this new uh, this new uh, environment that we're living in that, that has emerged, um, and that clearly has anthro anthropocenic or anthropogenic repercussions, the, the use of resources by these data centers, right, in, in a world of, of decreasing uh, resources. Uh, so uh, 
all of these have question marks because I have not <laughs> been able to label these things yet. I mean, I haven't, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm not convinced by any of these terms. Um, the episteme, obviously, uh, some people have proposed cybernetics or the cyber world. Uh, I, myself, am thinking, are we moving into a post-cultural world where certainly cultural issues are important locally, but at that level of the Internet of Things, the cultural doesn't have, along with its, with its associated terms, identity, representation, so on and so forth, doesn't have the traction to actually have an effective politics. The manifestations, the forms of organizing, assemblages have been uh, proposed, but that's not my own term. I don't have such a term. People could help me so I could begin to fix. And of course, I don't have the slightest idea <laughs> of what would be the form of agency in this new environment because of, again, agency itself as a term seems to be put uh, into, uh, uh, here I'm thinking in Spanish, uh, not under erasure, but it, it's, it's challenged. What does agency mean in a context of the Internet of Things? Unless you're actually one of the people who designed the Internet of Things, right? Um, and of course, referring back again to cultural studies, like where I began to do things, and the famous cultural studies from the Birmingham Center for Cultural Studies, Circuit of Culture, where you look at the relationship of representations to identity production, consumption, and regulation, where it's in that process, in the reception of texts, that one would, uh, going through this circuit, the receptivity of text would then have an effect on the reader or on the recipient and then through the agency of the recipient on society. All right. seems that this model is no longer a model that's viable for... Nor is Bourdieu's model of autonomous or semi-autonomous spheres of culture. Um, I think that... So again, here what I find... Um, interesting is that um, also what I find what I had before on on the uh, here it's that recently when you're thinking about the relationship of aesthetics and politics if one can think about aesthetics in in the form of text which is the one that we're accustomed to right you read a text and you make a an aesthetic analysis in since Plato and Aristotle, there's a politics of aesthetics. Is the politics of, of our activity what we could call a different, uh, uh, emergent aesthetic activities that are more interactive, immersive, relating to affects and sensations in connection with this new cybersphere? Could that could one still see the rearticulation re of the sensible as a political intervention? Or has the rearticulation of the sensible actually been tapped and harnessed to this new environment? 
So these are the questions that I end up with, and um, I'm eager to hear if anyone has any suggestions. Thank you. case of Madrid, actually, the, since the new, Madrid is governed by, by the right. Mm -hmm. So since that has been the case, this particular media lab has been threatened with closure mm -hmm. many times. And because uh, in Spain, there isn't the same level of private funding as there is in the United States. It could be that, that this marvelous center would be closed. Um, the, uh, again, one of the ironies would be, it would be an irony for the Media Lab, if Telefonica, which is one of the largest telecommunications companies, became its sponsor. Right? As, as we know, as I said before, brands, I, I didn't have all this, show all this stuff here, but the telephone companies, along with Red Bull and a series of other sponsors are some of the sponsors most involved in art, in music, so on and so forth. So it would be conceivable if 
a lot of the projects hadn't been critical of Telefonica, that Telefonica could come through with some funding. Um, but yes, it's subject to that. I mean, there's, there's a larger political issue that uh, in the case of this, it wouldn't be about corruption. It would be about whether or not um, a, a conservative government would want to fund it. Another, another uh, the, the conservative government also wants to see larger numbers. The kinds of people who collaborate here collaborate in groups, like working groups, in this, well, it's like a three or four story building. So there's n many groups, but we're not talking about thousands of people. We're talking, I mean, they may have effects aside from the working groups, but it's, it's really a laboratory for experimentation. So there, there is a limit there that they could be eliminated. Um, I, I think I told you, but um, it, the state still has, uh, it depends on the state. For example, uh, this model is going to be adopted, the model of the Media Lab, by a, a new arts university in Ecuador. And I'm one of the officials of that university. And it's only because Correa, the president, is something of an uh, autocrat <laughs> that he designated like six huge buildings and $220 million to get the university going, right? Which is peanuts in the United States, but in, in a small Latin American country, $220 million is a lot of money. And so they're very interested in um, having a lab like this work with different communities in Guayaquil, where it is, uh, precisely because they see this as compatible with the, there's a, uh, there's a uh, program. It's more than a program. It's a mindset in the Constitution called Buen Vivir which is actually adopted from uh, an indigenous term, which I can't remember what it is at this moment, from the Quechua, or Quechua in, in Ecuador, which means the good life. But not the good life in the consumerist sense. It means like being able to live well in community, in solidarity, so on and so forth. So they see a center like this, a lab like this, as compatible with that. But this is a case in which a president who belongs to the to the pink tide, right, uh, has a sense of. Well, he also has a developmentalist sense. It's not like he's he's a social, really a socialist. He's a developmentalist. He's he's a he's a Franklin Delano Roosevelt, with with like a works progress uh, 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 administration program. He wants to have fifty years of development in five. Right, so this happens to be compatible with that. Again, it's it's a question. I mean, it's it's a conjunctural issue, right? Um, but I gave the example of Madrid because it's, it's 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 existed for over a decade, and it has done a lot of interesting work. But it, I was there in November, and I was told by the director that you know he's fighting off the the government because they're threatening the whole time. Hi, I'm Gordon Andrew from the Brennan School of Comparative Media Studies. 
And I wanted to go back to what you were talking about right, in terms of curation and sovereignty uh, or agency. Um, and you, you were sort of talking about curation as uh, either democratization of demand or uh, subtracting the element of surprise. Um, but, but it seems to me that one of the things about curation is, is the question of who's doing the curating, right? right. And, or, or what's doing the curating. And so uh, I guess the way that I've been thinking about curation generally is that we might have on the one hand algorithms that curate, right. or we might have celebrity bloggers, or we might have uh, what we can think of as the democratization of curation, that, that anyone can do it. I can make a public playlist on Spotify, and then I can do that. Right. So I was interested in getting your feedback about whether you view that as a contested area uh, in terms of who or what is curating, and whether in fact that that uh, contested area might lead to the sort of optimistic or pessimistic pictures that you made in the end, which I, which I really appreciate. Uh -huh. So for example, it seems to me that if we were invested in the optimistic outcome, does it make sense to design curation as a democratic process, I think anyone involved in. No. I think, I mean, it, it's true. And my, I myself follow on Spotify. I have friends throughout the world that I see on Spotify, and they're listening to X. So I see, oh, so-and-so is listening to X. Let me listen to what he's listening to. Um, there, it's, it's, it's recommender. It's a recommender. I mean, recommender software is a form of curation, right? Because I, I value the person that's, that's listening to things on Spotify. For all I know, however, he's listening to what he's listening to, but maybe I listen to it, so I'm not sure. Uh, in any case, I do like that because it also involves an element of sociability that if and when I communicate with them, because these are like, the equivalent of Facebook friends. I mean, probably your Facebook friends, you don't know intimate, you probably don't know 80% of them intimately, or at least I don't. Uh, so, but if and when you meet, you can also discuss what you've shared or something like that. So certainly something like that is interesting as opposed to uh, just having my content curated for me by a celebrity or by a music producer who may not exactly be a celebrity, but who is fame. Well, I guess he's a celebrity. Jimmy Yovine is is famous, or if you have Trent Reznor because he's a you know musician, so on and so forth. Um, they're it's, it's just a little different because they're individuals creating their own playlists as opposed to the algorithms, right? Um, so I do think that there's a variety of possibilities, some of them that, that don't have the kind of agency that lead to social change. I think that when we're going back to Masumi's body on this end, social change on that end, um, sensations and motivations in between that are often not examined, uh, at least in some cases there's no necessary correlation between how my body's reacting to what I'm listening to that so-and-so listen to, and social change. I mean, it's like going from a micro issue to a macro issue that are not easily connected. So I would want to find a different word than agency for that. Right? Agency doesn't seem to be the right word for 
for this phenomenon that we're discussing. Yeah. Back there? Yes, go back. Yes, go yes, hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, my name is Lily, and I'm a first-year master's student in comparative media studies. And my research actually has to do with censored environments in the city. Um, and so I feel like I have a million questions for you, but if you were just to pick one, um, I kind of wanted to zoom in on something that you said that was very provocative. Um, you said that people will no longer be at the helm of data analysis, and that machines may make decisions based on the data that they're gathered themselves. And this vision of autonomous machines making decisions for us and for themselves is, it kind of reminded me of the rhetoric around um, the Industrial Revolution and the machine age. And like I thought immediately of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Yeah. Right. So there was a vision of machines kind of overrunning the earth. And right. I think if technology evolved in a vacuum, yes, that would be true. And we might arrive at some point like Ray Bradbury's, you know, what comes off rains with the house kind of taking care of itself with no humans present. But I think um, that human error and human inscription are kind of indelible from technology because we're the ones that are designing this technology. So I wonder um, what your thoughts are on how the internet of everything is essentially different or not from previous paradigm shifts um, in terms of moving from more analog modes of production to digital and then to the virtual? I'm not sure. Um, I, I mean, it, it, I, I can't base my gut feeling about this on a reasoned argument yet. About, but I, I, I do think that there's a qualitative difference. Not just, it's not a quantitative one. That is that all the algorithms that are used in analyzing data, for example, the kind, I mean, at the very simplistic level, where there isn't, at least it hasn't been in my experience, a mistake. When I buy a book from Amazon, and I've bought many, that the recommended ones are reasonably on target yeah. in something that I would read, right? I mean, I don't get, you know, uh, the golden book for little kids. I get, you know, a series of books that I say, well, you know, I'm, if I had time, I'd be interested in reading this book. Um, so I think that there's a set of algorithms, the ones that, for example, function without having a guy at the helm determining where the parking spaces are available, or when you go on your GPS and it tells you you see the road in red because there's traffic jams there and you should take an alternate route. Those kinds of things are of course, there could be mistakes. You, you could follow the GPS and find out that there is a traffic jam. But um, I think that there's a difference between that and the metropolis model. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the algorithms that analyze the data. right? Because what, what the, what the uh, metropolis model didn't have, what, what industrial era machinery didn't have, were sensors that allowed them to self-adjust, or at least to adjust according to a series of protocols with algorithms that, so with all these sensors, I mean, there's very, it's, it's not a very, I mean, it might be difficult, I, I can't do the math, but I can certainly think of having a sensor detect something. Of course, if the sensor breaks or somebody punches it, it won't work. But I've been in cases of, of like, um, 
do you know the hypercities models uh, where cities are have sensors embedded? It's similar like to when you go to a museum and you no longer have to purchase the the guide, the recorded guide. Instead you use your phone and there's a there's a QR uh, barcode that as you go by the painting the phone tells you what the painting's about. So in a world that's set up with all these sensors with the right algorithms, it, it can, it's different than a machine, right, like a steam engine, that uh, is, is not able to correct itself or give you the information or change gears. As you move from one room to another, sensors capture your movement and give you the information as you go. So I mean, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but I, I have the sense that there's a qualitative difference between those machines and these. But I mean, I, I had some more thoughts, and I wanted to push on that as well. Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, to I'm Eric State, and I'm a second year master's student here, finishing up um, a thesis about autonomous vehicles. Um, and what, what I sort of want to point out there, too, is that even you know, even if you have algorithmic systems living in the world in some sense, they're sort of not, they're not self-generating. They've been designed and programmed by, right. people, oh, yeah. by organizations yeah. for particular purposes and with particular goals in mind. Um, and they're still likely to be, you know, someone in a back room somewhere monitoring um, some, like, you know, systems administrators keeping the servers running. Oh, yeah. And so there are all these sorts of people operating in, in maybe marginal roles when you sort of look at, you know, what is, what is the object, you know, a sort of, you know, internet-connected table. But if you expand that view outward, you're seeing, you know, all sorts of other relations that involve people and involve human judgment in sort of interesting ways. Um, and so I, I just wanted to sort of, you know, push on that point a little bit yeah. about what's, you know, what's different about a, a system that sort of reacts automatically, but with a program that was designed by people, sure. as opposed to you know, some other model. Yeah, I mean, it, there is a sense in which a uh, conveyor belt, right, is also design, designed by somebody, and somebody can intervene it if it's not working right, adjust it. And a system of sensors doing the same thing, and maybe the algorithms are not working and have to be adjusted, so on and so forth. Uh, but it's, it's, it's I, th I think it's qualitatively different because of the scale and its scope that um, that, that has an effect. I mean, the, the, this, or, or, I mean, consider, um, I mean, when you're looking at that, what, what does Facebook have close to 2 billion users now? So it's hard for me to think that there's an N individual tracking close to 2 billion users on Facebook. Of course, there's people doing it, right? But there's a lot of automation built into, for example, looking up on, even though I'm doing it on Google, looking up something and then going into my Facebook and all an ad comes in between two posts telling me something about... Uh, uh, phlebitis or something like that, because I had looked up something about phlebitis. 
Um, so there's, there's, a, there's an intervention into many spheres of life beyond the kind of issue that we had in, in, in the industrial world. It's, it's, it's working with the machines was not in your everyday life at every level. Right? If, if you're in, in a factory, uh, if you're in a steel mill, if you drive uh, a locomotive, it's not the same thing as having that information come to me and then my acting on that information. So, I mean, I think that the scale and scope are significantly different. There's an old, I mean, there's like an old problem here of the relationship between quantity and quality, where the scope and scale, uh, at what point they make qualitative differences. But, I mean, I... are making some of the decisions, but they're making it, if it's for this affect economy, working with humans. Um, and I go back, well, it's about, to the notion of greed, because greed is something that we're genetically, human beings are genetically programmed for, but machines. It's territoriality. We try our best to overcome it, but yes, yeah, money. Would we be in this business if that were right? <laughs> what investment do machines have in profit? Um, but of course, yeah. then there are all these people who tell us about how the body is being re-engineered, and more and more we're going to get all these computer chips to do this, to do that, to extend, uh, make extensions of what we can do. Um, so. I think you're on to something, Elizabeth. You're right. There no, is I want people to yeah. think about that. Right. I want to know about that. Right. That's good. I know Paloma had a question, and we're almost out of time. Okay. So we, probably your question, we should continue at dinner. That's okay. <laughs> but I did want to say, I wanted, want to say that there's a lot of discussion in the literature about that question, which is, which, which is to say that, there, that what doesn't seem to have emerged in any kind of automation or machine uh, data analysis is an ethical decision on these issues. So uh, an ethical decision about what it means to have uh, the effect on where I might be directed in terms of taste or something like that. So that, that's something that's, that's not there. Yeah. Is there one last question from the crowd? Something last? Okay, this will be the last question. Please, uh, and please introduce yourself. Yeah. I'm uh, Joel DePello, and I work nearby at a sort of biotech company called Thanks. Um, and I was just, I was interested in that thread that was sort of going back and forth. And it seems like currently, um, like the algorithms and technology that we have that are like making decisions are making decisions as an extension of an entity or corporation's agency. Like they're not actually making, or the decisions that they're making seem to be an extension of 
someone else's or some other entity, like human entity, informal corporation or otherwise, right. what they want to have decided for you, or like what what choices there are, um, and then like which decisions to make off of that. So I think that like there's, in that sense, there's like a limited scope in which these things are functioning, and um, and that scope is devised, as Avram was saying, like by engineers or like sure. behind. Engineers and designers, I would say, because yeah. designers can guide the engineering. Um, and I, of course, these companies do it for profit-oriented reasons, but they do have effects on us that are not, that go beyond the, whatever they have as their profit motive. So I think that what much of the literature here is looking at is what are the effects that this is all producing, right? I mean, you could look at it from the end of, of the agency of the corporation that wants to make a profit, which is certainly the case. But the effects are much larger than that particular motivation. So maybe your agency is design. <laughs> Between the human and the algorithm. I don't know if that helps or not. But there's a food here for reception. Oh. But please join me in thanking uh, George Udacy.